Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today, George and I are joined by Mr. Ahmed Patel. Ahmed, it's great to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. So Ahmed's education and work is in Muslim extremism, and um, he's been a specialist in terrorist insight, focusing on British European cases uh, in a freelance capacity since 1988. That's more than 34 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ahmed has been featured in numerous different articles, uh, publishings, media, shorts, YouTube. Ahmed is a respected voice within the terrorism research community, counterterrorism. And uh, well, it's an honor to have you here with us today, Ahmed, to speak about these issues. Well, thank you very much once again. Uh, yeah. So I wanted to start with perhaps what is the most often questions that is directed towards you, because you you have an interesting sort of journey into counterterrorism and terrorism extremism research. Mm-hmm. And that is that as we commemorate 17 years since the terrorist bombings in London on the 7th of July of 2005, in which four separate bombs were detonated that day, which saw 52 people lose their lives uh, in a day marked by carnage, violence, hatred, in short, terrorism. But for yourself, that day took on an exceptional pain, as you were told only days later that your brother-in-law, Mohammed Sadiq Khan, died as one of the suicide bombers responsible for the attacks that day. Can you share with us uh, a little about how you managed that shocking revelation and how it affected your life and your work and your research since? Mm, well, initially on the, the morning of the 12th of July, 2005, I had a knock on the door, it must have been about 6.30 a.m. Um, and I saw obviously these men in suits along with uh, my family. Um, and I was half asleep, so I asked them, what's going on? So my brother just uh, moved a bit forward and said, uh, oh, that thing in uh, London, Siddiq's done it. So this is something that really shocks a lot of people. And then obviously the counterterrorism office was, officers were there, um, and I asked them, I was, who are you? And they identified themselves as Scotland Yard, British counterterrorism, etc. So then I turned around and I asked them, I was, What's happening? What's going on? Um, and then, you know, once again, uh, my brother said that thing in London. And I said, what thing in London? Because because with it being summer, summer July, uh, you know, I ha- you hardly ever switch the TV on. So I wasn't even aware of anything in London, apart from, I think, an early morning news story about some uh, electrical problem. And after that, the TV was off for five, six days. So then... As the officers came in, um, I switched the TV on. Uh, once again, I asked the officers once again, what's going on? You know, who are you? What's going on? And uh, they, obviously they showed us the cards and everything. So it was just an absolute shock. Um, and then even as um, the news unfolded during the day, uh, there was denial um, and confusion and just looking at everything you hang on there's been a mistake here somewhere first of all these kind of things bombings don't happen you know i mean i know about the ira but you think hang on and then because of my brother-in-law uh, having shown no signs 
Um, I'm thought, I actually thought, initially I thought, okay, if somebody has done a bombing, right, then he's, he's a victim. He hasn't done it. He, he might have been on the train, but he, he's just one of the victims. So, and once again, I do get questioned and people will say things like to me, like you're lying, you're making this up. I goes, listen, the counterterrorism office was, officers were there. They were present in my living room. Uh, I was asking them and they were aware of my reaction. So, you know, uh, I don't have anything to worry about because I do get sometimes nasty comments. And recently I've been back on Twitter and uh, talking to people and be, I do get ac accusations uh, thrown at me. Well, the counterterrorism officers, they were there on the 12th of July. They had to tell me what happened. Yes, uh, quite quite an unusual turn of, uh, of events. Uh, I'm sure if, uh, as you say, you're not a, a TV or a, or a media consumer. But I guess one of the one of the questions that must be often directed towards you, Ahmed, and one that uh, that I'd like to as well to just to have a better idea of the mm -hmm. the, um, the events that took place uh, thereafter is, is of course you know where you aware of of any signs or any indications. Uh, that Muhammad and Sadiq Khan would uh, was thinking this way and feeling this way and was imminently about to to strike. No, the because his his lifestyle his lifestyle was he was still a loner. He was married to my sister, but he was still a loner. So we would get into arguments about you know where are you half the time um, because he was hardly ever at home and I you know and, and to some extent I just thought maybe he has a girlfriend somewhere or a second wife somewhere. He was always traveling. Um, so he was up, he was basically like a, I actually thought that when he became a father, he'd become, you know, he'd be more at home, but this never happened. He was, he was hardly ever at home. And the thing with Dewsbury, um, Dewsbury being a, a Sufi community, he didn't like Dewsbury. Um, he didn't pray in any of the, the mosques in Dewsbury as a Salafi. Um, and he even told me that I don't believe my, um, prayers are going to be answered in any of these mosques in Jewsbury. So I said, well, why did you marry my sister then? Why did you come here? What's your problem? So I had a lot of conflict with him, a lot of conflict. Uh, some people, if they ask me, I reveal it. And some people, they don't ask me, I don't reveal it. But I had a lot of conflict with him. But in terms of the extremism side, there was nothing. There was just, it was just, uh, um, I don't know, maybe he didn't want to attract attention to himself maybe he knew minds he, he knew my mindset which is Sufi mindset so maybe if he did do something to me he would have thought you know maybe Ahmad will go to the police so there was nothing it was just normal conversation just normal uh you know okay he talked about Iraq but everybody talked about Iraq you know the entire country the world talked about the Iraq invasion and that was it nothing nothing to be worried about Right. One of the things that we would assume on the outside is that somebody that's capable of this much violence and carnage and planning, um, you know, would would be at any opportunity would very vociferous about the hatred of of this and that. And mm. but as you're saying, you know, it's not always the case uh, no. that is very visible and obvious. And mm. and we'll mention this further down in the conversation. But online communities and the internet in general has provided a meeting ground uh, where one can exchange hateful ideologies with other people in almost complete anonymity and silence. And I'm mm -hmm. not sure if this was the case for, for Sadiq, mm -hmm. uh, but it just goes to show how Sadiq could have had this family life and this public life mm -hmm. um, that wouldn't have raised any suspicions, unfortunately, uh, until it was too late. Do you think that's true? Well, you know, I mean, as I say to many people uh, that, a lot of, well, most of what I know about him now is obviously after the 12th of July. 
um, from online research and there's an interview with his own oldest brother, uh, interview with, uh, um, and then revelations were made, um, which came out, I think, about one or two years after uh, regarding something called Operation Crevice. So everything, the, the information I have now um, is really about his life and the, his, his input from official sources, government sources, and revelations, which, which, which I found, I found uh, shocking as well. And I know of the word that was used initially was uh, clean skins. But then it came out that, once again, you know, referring to Operation Crevice, um, people can go online and uh, research that. But yeah, uh, I would say that he obviously wanted to, as far as family or uh, ourselves or locally, he wanted to remain under the radar. So there was nothing suspicious here. But then revelations online about uh, what some people knew out there, uh, I still I still find them shocking to this day. Mohammed uh, Sadiq Khan, he produced a video before his suicide bombing in which mm-hmm. he mentioned British foreign policy mm-hmm. as the motive of his actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, he's he was not the only one. Um, to list foreign policy as, as a direct motivation. Um, there were many others uh, before him, many other terrorists who also saw foreign policy as the prime motivator of, uh, of their attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see a correlation between Western intervention, then we're talking 2005, as you've mentioned, still in the middle of the, uh, of the Iraq uh, war, Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, during a, during a year in which it was particularly bloody, 2005, um, with many uh, uh, many bombs going off in Baghdad, uh, shootings and personnel lost for mm-hmm. the coalition forces and, of course, Iraqi civilians. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you see a correlation between that Western intervention in places like Iraq, but also perhaps Libya, uh, not to mention many other more, and terror attacks at home? And how much do you think we can attribute to the politics or the political fallback from that intervention mm-hmm. um, uh, rather than, let's say, other motivations uh, such as, uh, and we'll get into this perhaps later, but uh, mm-hmm. perhaps mental health problems, uh, bro- broadly speaking. You know, if there was a balance between the, the motivations, do you, do you think foreign policy outcry would be on top? Well, I mean... The whole foreign policy debate, um, and I try to, and I've, you know, the, the grievance factor, the, yeah, you know, people, we do accept millions of lives have been lost uh, in these countries. Um, and I mean, <laughs> I mean, the phrasing that I use is these, uh, even the, some of activists uh, and the terrorists will use those as uh, justifications or soft justifications. Um, like when I'm discussing terrorism with Muslims who don't support obviously terrorism, but they say, say, well, what about? So I, because I'm a, I'm a Sufi Muslim, my my mindset is, you know, forget the what about, because as, as a Sufi Muslim, we focus on our ourselves and our community and our connection to God. Whereas politicized Muslims, obviously, uh, with the legal activism, yeah, they might uh, mention foreign policy grievance. And we know it has obviously caused problems. You know, I can't, I can't take away the pain uh, on the reality of what has happened to millions of people abroad, right? Uh, because they have suffered, and millions of innocent people have suffered, and that has happened. And uh, you know, it's not for me to negate what has happened to them. But when some terrorists they use that justifier, um, and then with regards to my brother-in-law, 
I thought, hang on. Because then at some time in my mind, something clicked in me when I was researching uh, white mass shooters in America, because I've done a lot of research. Uh, there's a whole list of books. And at one, at one particular point, I can't remember, this is before I went public, I was thinking, hang on, why is it that whenever a white mass shooter in America does something, and there's been a, a huge amount, and a huge amount this year, the, one of the first things that people do is they try to approach the family and they start discussing mental health issues. And yet when a Muslim does something, um, the first thing or the questions uh, go to the community. Let's go talk to the imam. Let's go talk to the local mosque. Is it Islam? Is it Muslims? Is it the prophet? So, so after, you know, after uh, observing this for many years, I... I then decided to make public a certain revelation. Uh, this revelation, uh, before I actually did my first interview, I emailed to a lot of researchers. And the revelation was, is that he he was a, a victim of a, an incident with an imam in a mosque around about the age of 10. He, he went home, he told his parents, now I've explained this in more detail as, as a Barilvi, that he comes from a Barilvi background. In the Barilvi background, the Imam is more than an Imam. He's much more than an Imam. So he goes home and he says to his parents and family, I've been abused. His parents didn't want to know. His family didn't want to know. Um, now, this revelation when he made to be in my living room, I was absolutely shocked. And I had to then when I discussed uh, the, the book with Dr. Lewis Harrington, Understanding Islamist Terrorism in Europe, he then explained to me the effect of child abuse, that uh, child abuse, someone carries this for life, and, and sometimes they need to unload, and it's to do with shame and remorse and things like that. So so this connection, so this connection with abuse, childhood abuse, trauma, um, few people have either been, uh, well, how would say, been able to communicate this to the public. It's very easy to always just say it's Islam because it's a Muslim. But but with via my discussions with Dr. Lewis Harrington, we then and when I read the I was given the chapters of his book, obviously and I'm an acknowledged contributor. I then came across someone who understood but who was able to articulate uh you know this particular mindset or you know this reaction to the abuse. Um, and like I say, it's best left to him because, you know, I'm not a professor and so I'm not that fantastic at communicating. But that's why when I've con uh, connected to him, I found that he explained childhood trauma and the effect it has. Now, a lot of people, they will say, and, and once again, I've got this on Twitter. So you're saying that terrorists are terrorists because of childhood trauma, because of childhood abuse. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying that these are factors. And the... the uh, the desire to be to be a hero, the desire to be a man, the desire to, to prove yourself is now also acknowledged by many other professors that I can send you links to. But this is something that I, I always knew and I had, I had in the back of my mind is that, oh, if it's a Muslim terrorist Islam, it's a white mass shooter, um, then it's mental health. And I, I found that very problematic and unfair. You're onto something here. And I think the, the media landscape it's certainly the one chiefly to blame, uh, as you said. If it's a if it's a white person who commits a heinous act, it's a mass shooting. If it's a 
Muslim person, it's terrorism, Islamic terrorism. And certainly there's much more to talk about there. But just going off your your mention of Lewis Harrington, uh, I've got in front of me a table uh, penned by Lewis Harrington, Drugs, Jihad and the Pursuit of Martyrdom. Mm-hmm in which um, there's a column by which it's terrorist attacks dating from the the first item being the 25th of May, 2013, and the last one, the 30th of May of 2018. Uh, So five years worth of terrorist attacks in in Europe. And and you can see, for example, at 20th of December, 2014, uh, the Tour police station attack, uh, and it lists uh, the addiction, Mm. the psychopathy, uh, of the of the of the chief attacker in question. So, for example, mm-hmm. on that attack, you have cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look, for example, at the Nice truck attack in France, fourteenth of July, twenty sixteen, we have cocaine addiction and a history of mental instability. Mm-hmm. Or in Italy, on the nineteenth of May of twenty seventeen, the Milan station stabbing, another cocaine addiction and diminished uh, responsibility. So it seems that Lewis Harrington, and if I'm not mistaken yourself, Ahmed, is making a connection between terrorist attackers and a history of criminality, a history of drug addiction, a history of psychopathology, and perhaps perhaps a bit more difficult to, to evidence, a history of child abuse. Do you think there's a correlation there that is not often talked about? Well, I mean... If you just forgive me, I'll, uh, I have a book here, Jihad and Death, the Global Appeal of Islamic State, Olivier Roy. Uh, once again, he states quite clearly, majority of uh, terrorists in Europe were all petty, petty criminals. So, you know, I have, a, I have a whole library of research. And then another book I'll, I've just pulled out, uh, Brigadier Barker, The Dark Trajectory of Jihad. He calls most of the uh, people who went to join ISIS losers who had nothing better to do. No jobs, no life, no family. Uh, ex-criminals uh, who wanted to prove something. So it's not just me, it's, and it's not just now Dr. Louis Harrington. There's also uh, Olivia Roy and, uh, uh, and Brigadier Barker, who's actually ex-FBI. The question, though, that comes up with, you know, when you're discussing ISIS in particular is, mm-hmm. well, there's two questions that come to mind, which is, first, is this comparison with the white and nationalist problem so it begs the question of, is the process of radicalization different for Muslim extremists than it is for white mass shooters? The other question that, that springs to mind off the back of this then is, basically, why does it happen with the frequency it does? The, there was a, a statistic that I thought was quite shocking at the time when ISIS was conquering in Iraq and Syria, which was that more British Muslims were fighting in ISIS Mm. then were enlisted in the British military. Well, obviously now moving on from the uh, issue of, uh, you know, drugs and personal issues, that is the other issue of ideology. So I'm not going to, you know, negate ideology completely. Ideology is also a factor. So there are also Muslims, some Muslims who will 100% think that terrorism is the right thing to do. So once again, as with uh, many other issues, you have to accept a spectrum of uh, ideology or a spectrum of belief where uh, you have a combination of grievance and you have a combination of ideology. And it's quite possible that there are some people who don't have any grievance um, and who have perfectly you know, decent lives, but their ideology somewhere along the line, they say, okay, you know, it's quite fine to do all this. And this is kind of ties into my uh, work also on uh, 
child sexual abuse, uh, where some people think that's okay uh, uh, to rape a Yazidi because I'm a Muslim and she's not a Muslim. So I'm not a denier. You know, I'm not. I'm not going to say that it's all. You know that they are victims, or they are. Uh, you know, we should feel sorry for them because they were abused as children, or they were drug addicts. There are. You know, they they do make a choice, and this is something that confuses people. And I say, hang on, I haven't finished the conversation yet because we're having a conversation. People do make a choice. And uh, sometimes uh, uh, there are those out there of a particular persuasion, they will use the term grooming, that, oh, they were groomed, you know, specifically talking about, you know, some girls from London. That, well, sometimes people do make a choice. And and that's the, that's the part where also the tough part of the equation that we have to accept that, yeah, they do make a choice. They're not, you know, they, they've made a rational choice that oh, what I'm doing is right. And, and I think that the tough part is, is a really interesting point because, mm. you know, you can be a victim and a perpetrator at the mm. same time. Yeah. This is when life gets a bit more complicated than some people Absolutely. are left. And especially if you don't mind me saying so, mm. a lot of young people today who want to make everything so black and white. Yeah. There are victims and perpetrators. There's no doubt that in the case of, uh, for example, your, your former brother-in-law, Sidi Khan, uh, there, there was a history of, of being a victim, uh, but also that he shoulders uh, the majority of the blame for being a perpetrator and not seeking the difficult, long, arduous process that is healing oneself through therapy, through friendship, family, community, purpose, job, religion, even in, in a Absolutely. Context. There are so many ways, mm. but unfortunately for himself and for the victims that day, mm. uh, Sadiq Khan chose, chose another option. But in that, in, in that process, I dare say he was not alone. Mm. He was radicalized at some point. We may never know by whom or where exactly, whether it was online based, whether it was um, by a, a rogue imam, whether it was by books, whether there's many different pathways to radicalization. Of course. But one thing that, and, and a question that I have for you, Ahmed, is that it seems to me that selling jihad hmm. by agents that want to radicalize because they have a political agenda, they may not be the ones who personally strap on a suicide hmm. bomb, but they might find younger men, essentially, who, who have a grievance, mm. whether that is from a personal story of, for example, mental health, uh, drug addiction, child abuse, mm. or are gullible in, in some other way, vulnerable people, and turn them into perpetrators. And it's these people, you know, the radicalizers, if you will. Mm. Do you think that for them, with this motive, it's easier to sell jihad, which promises an instant solution to life's problems, to these dispossessed gullible youth, rather than the moderate normal Islam that, and if I might quote you, Ahmed, from our conversation mm. uh, before this podcast, mm. can sometimes be quite dull, repetitive, yeah. um, very conservative, and not not so easy to sell, let's yeah. say. Absolutely, just boring, really. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, once again, this actually also applies to a lot of conv converts. Um, and, you know, I've... I've had uh, conversations with other experts talking about converts. Um, uh, Dr. Simon Cotty, he's talked about converts. And I've uh, made a post on LinkedIn about converts. Islam is boring. You know, uh, I will say Islam is boring. There's nothing much exciting about it. You do your prayers, you do your fasting, which is hard. Uh, you, you know, you live a good life. You know, you go to, uh, through the daily grind with people. And that's about it. So, 
part of the remo- re- removal of this um, this monotony along came activism so now you had these activists who could go on marches and then you know you print leaflets and oh you know you have speakers and there's a lot of ego involved there as well so to so show you had activism to remove you know this monotony and then unfortunately we now have terrorism to take it to another level you know grand theft auto jihad as i call it you know guns and four five four by fours and everything that as we saw with isis so yeah um a lot of it is escapism and a lot of it is choice is choice um and we can't deny the, the choices people make two salafi muslims were shot dead outside a mosque in a a Faisalabad district of Punjab province, this is mm-hmm. in Pakistan, uh, mm-hmm. following a religious divide between the Baravi and Salafi groups that started about four years ago over the construction mm-hmm. of the Abu Ayyub uh, Ansari Mosque, which belongs to the Salafi group. Are Muslims targets for Islamic terrorists, or no. is the problem sort of more, you know, mental health, religion, impulsivity, and ignorance, you know, all of these all combined together? Well, here you see this. This has shocked a lot of people, yeah, uh, two Salafi Muslims shot dead for blaspheming. So we have we have really, I mean, I'm, I keep telling people it's a power struggle and it's a power struggle within Islam itself. Now, ISIS were are classed as Khawarij in the uh, uh, Arabic terminology. So uh, Khawarij first came about... Uh, once again, I believe, you know, um, obviously it's online when there was a power struggles between Muslims, between really what you might call the Sufis and those who then were those who wanted to further expand Islam through violence. And a lot of people, they're not aware of the term Khawarij, uh, who killed companions of the Prophet. So this has happened before when some Muslims have justified killing companions of the Prophet over, uh, over a power struggle. And and when we try to explain this to people that listen, and we have problems within Islam itself, right? And to, to, to you know to mainly put it down simply, they are the good Muslims and the bad Muslims. Some people they don't want to know, but this this particular uh, story here, yeah, um, it, it shows. And once again, but it's not just Pakistan; it is in the Middle East and elsewhere, and it does happen here, though, on a kind of a less extremism case. That you know, the arguments between the Sufis and the Salafis and the Takfiris, but the Burilvi extremism, which we also saw here in the UK, where a man from Bradford went to kill the uh, chap in Glasgow. Um, and then in Paris, there was an attack by a Burilvi, and as I put on LinkedIn, it's a Burilvi attack, not an ISIS attack. So there are problems in India and Pakistan, mainly Pakistan. And once again, because it, it, when the whole terrorism discussion started, there was an overuse of the word Salafis. Everybody was using the word Salafis, or oh, it's Salafi, Salafi. So there are books on Salafism, uh, which, you know, a lot of them should be thrown in the bin. And a lot of, um, and I say to people, and they don't like it, a lot of so-called expert papers should be thrown in the bin. Because here you have Barilvis killed by Salafis. So there is... I, a lot of the problem, and this is why the Sufism is the opposite of Takfiri, Salafism, or terrorism, is because of the power struggle. Sufis, are, like myself, we want to focus on ourselves and our communities. And uh, the others, whether you call them Takfiris or whatever, they want to change the world. Now, this particular incident just shows the, you know, the, the schism, as I call it, you know, the, the, the fault line within Islam. Uh, Barilvis want to kill Salafis, Salafis wanting to kill Barilvis, you know, each each um, making the decision that the other is the wrong type of Muslim. 
Within this power struggle, this dichotomy, these fault lines, as you were mentioning, Ahmed, between different Islamic sects, do you see that social media and online communities are playing a role in fostering and extending these divisions between the groups? And do you think they're more dangerous than traditional pathways to radicalize or what we've seen uh, before in history? Is the process now quicker and more aggressive and more severe uh, the more that young people turn towards um, online social media? I, I think for Muslims, we've never really needed social media to to, to, as I say, rip ourselves apart. <laughs> because when, when I go online and uh, look at some of the talks on YouTube coming from the different Muslim sects, they, you know, it's stuff that has been happening uh, privately over there within mosques for years and within communities. But I think, with, yeah, with online, uh, it's, just more, it's just more out there and it's revealed and it's open. Um, and then people from different countries get involved. This is why I... I actually put a publicly call for a complete separation for British Muslims to separate completely from India, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, and Saudi. I, I call for a completely British Islam because why are British Muslims, um, you know, following still following you know people back from India and Pakistan, which we have no connection to? Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, but that's that's my thinking. But yeah, unfortunately, the internet is still allowing this communication. Um, and this constant referral to back home, and I do, and I I do have uh, arguments with scholars who who refer to uh, either back home, India, Pakistan scholars. I say, well, hang on, that's the past, and that's you know over there. Why why do you need their guidance, or why do you have to follow what they're saying? So I do personally call for a complete separation. But they, but you can you know nobody can tell anybody what to do nowadays. The internet is there; they can click on what they want, they can read what they want, they can follow what they want. But the problem, once again, if it's Muslims that are doing it, it's Islam. But I have to make people aware that we have problems within within Islam. You know, not just within Islam, as in within Islam Muslims, but within Islam sects as well, and uh, the, different, the different types of thinking within Islam. Within towns and villages, you know, the problem is widespread. Christianity also had this problem as I'm sure did many other religions, of, of intersectionality, a hatred within the sects, mm. war and death. I mean, look at the European history, the Thirty Years' War, and the, the process of the Reformation was extremely bloody. And even in our country, up until recently, discrimination and even outright hatred for Catholicism and legal bans on what Catholics could do mm. as far as government uh, jobs and such and other things was, was quite present. And uh, further back in history, you could have uh, you know repression and death penalties handed out for Catholic uh, priests and such. Mm -hmm. So there's a long history of, uh, let's say, violence even within the religious groups that see each other as a blasphemous or heretical. Mm, mm. And so in that way, I think that there is an established um, pathway, an established history of this. And I, I also agree with you, Ahmed. I think the internet and social media is often seen as, as a game changer, let's say, that changed the playing field for everything and everyone. But that's not exactly true. Yes, the internet, I think, has has made it faster perhaps to be radicalized or has extended the reach of certain messages way beyond what how they were previously consumed. Mm. But it hasn't created terrorism. It hasn't created hatred. I mean, you look at 
you know, through history, the closest thing to the internet was a stone wall mm. with inscriptions chiseled into them with a hammer. Yep. And we still had religious fanaticism and terrorist violence, and we still had horrible uh, messages uh, by the Romans, you know, in graffiti, early examples of graffiti and political violence. Yep. And so, you know, is the internet really the decisive factor? Mm. Or have we simply failed to resolve age-old problem of hatred amongst humans and religions? It's the human condition. It's the human condition. It's always been the human condition because we all choose. When, when we go on the internet, we choose what we go on. We choose how to react to something in life. Like, for example, going back to personal issues on child abuse, we choose how we react. We will react to them. You know, there's uh, two people can have similar or identical uh, experiences in life. One becomes a murderer, the other becomes a saint. We, we, we make choices. We do make choices. So we make choices about what we access and we make choices about, obviously, sometimes there will be people out there who will approach you and say, you know, here is this, as I call it, for terrorism, a highway to heaven. But I think you still make a choice. You know, we can't, nobody can be said to be completely gullible. That's why I have kind of, I tend not to use, overuse the term grooming in the terrorism sense, because I think it's common sense to know that killing people is wrong. You know, there doesn't need to be a debate on that. But obviously, when someone does do that, then there has to be, uh, you know, in-depth in analysis as, as to the whole process and why they did it. And like I've said before, ideology, there are some people out there who will believe it's 100% right because, because the Muslim is a Muslim and a Kafir is a Kafir. Well, then let's talk a bit about choice in the modern era. That You are a researcher on Islamic history, theology, and politics. Hmm. Something I notice we discuss sort of Christian violence and terrible events, but I, I always notice the fact that there tend to be things that happened, you know, a long time ago. There mm -hmm. seems to have been some kind mm -hmm. of process that mm -hmm. slowly made it less violent, mm -hmm. which then begs on to, is there anything in Islamic practice, not just in theology, that condones or enables or validates making, you know, the ultimate personal sacrifice, an ultimate cause? No, it's, it's a very valid question. And I think uh, it needs to be asked. And I have opposed scholars for years. We've just had the Rushdie incident, which I completely condemned, and it's uh, on my pinned tweet. And we just seem to be going around in circles. We, we seem to be going around in circles. And as I've been tweeting, nobody, people are afraid to talk about Islam and the Quran and certain texts. And I say as a Muslim, there, there, is, there are some things in history. And obviously, I, we're going back 1,400 years. Because I'm not going to deny that there are certain texts there that, that justificate certain things. But for myself as a Muslim, I leave those things in that time and place. That's the way I phrase it. So for me, those things belong there in history. And there is a valid science, and, and, and I can debate with Muslims and non-Muslims. There's two valid sciences. One is called Ijtihad. Ijtihad means to put things in a modern context. And then there's a deeper science. It's called Fiqh al-Aqaliya. Uh, Fiqh al-Aqaliya is, is once again goes, goes on another level from Ijtihad, where you now, your Islam belongs... Uh, the, the citizen, you know, wherever you are a citizen, wherever you live, the time and the place, your Islam uh, comes second place to your loyalty to your country. And it's it's a genuine science, and I can, you know, obviously send links. So we are fiqh So I can quite safely say as a Muslim that those things in history belong in history. And, but they are, and what the problem I have is with people denying history. 
as if to pretend that these things, certain things didn't happen or certain things weren't said because they are there in print. And, you know, when people point them out, people will say, well, yeah, okay, so they don't apply. And I do agree they don't apply. But the problem is, uh, going back to Salafism now, or Takfir is more accurately, uh, one of the reasons why people have used Salafism, the term, is because Salafis, they kind of claim to follow those first three generations, which we call the Prophet Sahaba and those who came after that. But the uh, you will find that even there's a lot of Salafis, outspoken Salafis, who speak out against the political Salafism, which is the Takfirism, really. So once again, it's very complex. It's very complex. But if some people choose to take everything literally, how do we stop them? Uh, this is why the onus is really to stop the problem from within the Muslim community. Well, I wanted to speak more about that, Armin, now that you've mentioned it, because um, Sadiq, your brother-in-law, he was takfir, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, with him, you couldn't tell. Because, like I say, we have to differentiate between Salafi and takfiri. A Salafi can also be a Sufi in the sense, and as I know, even from a local mosque, they're, they're all very uh, Sufi. So it's a Sufi mindset. So a Salafi can be just be someone who follows who doesn't follow the four imams, but uh, he, he, he follows kind of quite little teaching. So we can then go into like a conversation where you can be completely orthodox, you can be strict, uh, you know, you can follow Islam to the letter and your, your, your life is not infringing on anybody else. So you're a peaceful Muslim. But what we have is a whole complication where sometimes strict Muslims or orthodox Muslims are seen as extremists. So, we, so this is why this conversation goes even deeper. So a Salafi can be a completely harmless person. Is the, the takfiri mindset? The takfiri mindset is is the dangerous one, as as we've seen with uh, with this blasphemy when someone says something and he's takfirid upon. In other words, people someone says, "Right now you've lost your iman. Now now you can be a target for punishment or whatever." But then on my LinkedIn, my latest post is, is actually an imam mentioning that now uh, the whole blasphemy thing, the takfiri thing, is basically the basically political and business where where you can just label someone because you want to destroy them. So in a way, it's a kind of cancel culture. A witch hunt could be another word for it. Something yeah. that Christianity and Christian countries had as well. Hmm. You know, and, and it seems to me that from what you're describing, Arnett, we have this, this multi-layered spider web. Hmm. Uh, Sufis, uh, Salafis, Takfiris, Barelvis hmm. on one hand, then the wider groups of Sunni and Shia, and then again divided by region and political affiliation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Hmm. You know, the Islamic world is is not as united as it might seem on the outside. Uh, there are many fault lines within it, hmm. and of course, there are victims who are hmm. not just people in Europe but also Muslims themselves targeting each other. So it's a very complicated uh, mm. arena. Well, I agree with you that the internet is not the cause of it. It certainly doesn't help mm. your social media spaces and just how quick messages can be sent across. But regardless, turning back to this, this multidimensionality and the fault lines within Islam, you, I mean, you've worked many years in not only terrorism, counter-terrorism research, but in outreach towards other Muslim communities. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about your experience doing that outreach and what you saw as productive and that yielded tangible results when dealing with Muslim communities from a Muslim perspective? And for example, I know you, you've mentioned the importance of personal choice. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about how that factors into the outreach work that you do? 
Well, unfortunately, this is the problem that a lot of Muslim groups have with me in the UK is when I when I have approached many or practically all the main main ones that we see online, there was a reluctance to discuss the subject. So in the beginning, I was very frustrated. In the in in, in the first years, I was very frustrated, and this applies to imams and uh, well, and the groups as well. And what I usually got was uh, was a what about it, and and this is why they don't like me further. Or what about Iraq? What about Syria? What about Afghanistan? What about what they do? So I said, no, hang on. We have to deal with what some Muslims have chosen to do here. Right? So I got what about it. So, so I was very frustrated. Then I, then I thought, hang on, why do they think like that? And then obviously I researched that psychology, the victimhood mindset, what about it? Why do they not actually... Um, you know, look at the problem and rather they look, uh, once again, resort to this uh, statistical thing, like, well, if you're going to compare uh, London bombings, you know, it's only so many over there is, uh, you know, thousands or millions, which I mentioned in the interview after the Manchester bombing. So then I thought victimhood, you know, hang on, these people, the Muslim has done something, but you're still kind of carrying the victim, victimhood mentality. So I researched that. And then I came. Uh, then I kind of made this phrase called the Muslim victim industry. And then I researched that. Then I researched Marxism and a, f- a few other political movements. And I and I put it all together. And then and then the first interview after the Manchester bombing, I used the term Muslim victim industry, where rather than dealing with the problem within our own community, they you know they're always talking about problems uh, abroad. So that added to my frustration. Um, and then the other thing that I had to face was. And and once again, some people that justify this, they, they call it like a, a siege mentality. They say, well, you know, if you're going to talk about terrorism, Muslim terrorism, why are you calling it Muslim terrorism? You're labeling us all. I said, no, you know, uh, every every intelligent person on the on the planet knows that when you're talking about Muslim terrorism, you're talking about Muslim terrorists. You're not talking about Islam and all Muslims. Yes, there are. There are people who will use, they will also use some of my work and what I have said and say, look, he's saying it's Muslim terrorism. Well, I'm saying, well, I'm just being specific because I'm differentiating between far-right terrorism or extremism and and, uh, Muslim terrorism. And, you know, there are different terminologies which are used like Islamism and that, which is a phrase that that I kind of have disagreements with, which I do have to sometimes use. So, yeah, the reaction was kind of really more defensive. And unfortunately, then when we had uh, ISIS, uh, I, I think a lot of people then they had nothing to say. They had to eat humble pie because the, the result of the inaction, the apathy then came out with ISIS with, you know, uh, I think thousands going from all over the world. So that was a result of apathy and uh, in, in a way, a kind of denial as well. Well, thank you for that, Ahmed. It's a pleasure to speak with you always. Um, I see you as someone who is leading the way into into strengthening the Muslim community here in Britain to find their own answers, to get tough, to prevent further senseless violence from happening, and to find a way to really fixate on the problems of that the youth might be facing, Muslim youth, and into finding a more productive outcome for their lives, and uh, to to heal those problems that we were mentioning earlier that in by lack of doing so, would lead to far more violent outcomes. And so you are part of that solution. And for that, I thank you. But we will speak 
more about Islamic history, tradition, moderate and radical Islam, and the grievances that you were just mentioning in further episodes, as uh, this podcast today was an introduction into yourself, uh, your life, your work, your outreach, and uh, for our audience to get to know you a bit more personally. So thank you for that and for joining us here today, Ahmed. Um, thank you for having me. You know, I really appreciate I always appreciate anybody else also who gives me a platform. And so thank you for having me. Thank you again for coming, and uh, I look forward to part two, and I hope the listeners do too. Thank you very much. And I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned. Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.